0: The scripture reading today is Galatians three twenty seven through twenty nine. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All right. How are we? Are we good? Um, <clears throat> real quick. Sorry, I I sometimes I forget to put my microphone on before I come up here. I'm like I'm forgetting something. No, I'm not. I'm good. Um, so uh, we have a building over here. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. It's like gray. It's not real impressive. Um, it's it, when the building was built here, it was meant to be the parsonage where the pastor would live. I don't live there. Um, so feel free to knock. Nobody's there. Um, but there is. Uh, we're renovating that space. It was a. It was a. Um. Sort of a ministry home for a group called the Timothy Initiative, but our, our children's ministry kind of outgrew itself. And so we're re- renovating that space to be, um, partly more children's space and partly counseling center. Um, we have started a counseling center to help meet the needs of, of people who, um, struggle with addiction or, or, um, abuse or just all the different issues that go along with, um, uh, human health. And so, we have a lot of clinicians in our church who are partnering with me to, to get help for all these people because, um, believe it or not, despite what you may have heard, most pastors are not qualified to do the kind of counseling that they say they can. And I recognize this. And so, um, <laughs> seriously. So, um, we've partnered with the clinicians in our church to create a space people, for people to get counseling. People are already getting counseling. Um, they're just doing it in, like, the mommy room and in, sometimes in my office when I'm not here. Um, we would love to finish that space. However, this year, um, you may have noticed a lot of things broke and had to be fixed. So first off, we had to put a roof on the building. That was about $55,000. When we bought the building, though, we started putting $2,000 a month. We foresaw that this was coming. So about for about five or six years, we've been just moving a couple thousand dollars a month into an account to pay for the roof when it finally went bad. It went bad. We had the money. We did it. Um, and so that worked out. However, we still had to replace gutters, and then the A.C. went out, and then the plumbing, in case you didn't notice several weeks ago, when nobody was allowed to use the bathrooms, the plumbing went bad. So we had to take money that was meant to finish that space and finish some things that were breaking. So um, I'm saying all this because if you're looking for something to give to, um, that's a great thing. Um, I, I want our kids to have an amazing space. Um to learn in and, and and to learn about the love of God and to be um part of the body of Christ and and um I I want spaces for our people who are uh struggling with different medical issues and and psychological issues um and relational issues to get help. And so if you just happen to have piles of piles of cash and you're like I don't know what to do with it all and you're Scrooge McDuck's woman in it take some in like throw it at the counseling center. We would love to get that space done. It wouldn't take much more. Um and so uh yeah, there's that. All right, so um, I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive into this passage, and uh, today we're going to be talking some about um, generosity, we're going to talk about how we view other people, and uh, I think it'll be beneficial. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as your people, as your body, all gathered together, all different, all have different gifts, all have different um, viewpoints and uh, different struggles, different sins, different successes, different levels of faith. Um, and we come together as one people, and we ask for your guidance and your mercy and your grace. I ask that uh, you would encourage us this morning, give something that we need, a piece of the puzzle that might be missing in our hearts and our lives. Um, I ask that those who are um, distracted by the things that are terrifying them from from the past weeks or the things that are coming in the future weeks or days ahead um that you would allow them to put those things aside for now and just be present here with you and with your people the things that have woken us up in the middle of the night that won't let us sleep that that speak into our ear terrible things about ourselves let us push them aside not listen to them but right now be present with a god who could not love us more thank you for who you are for what you're doing with us um Give us joy and hope this morning. in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start right here in verse 27, "For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So I'm going to stop there for a second. Um, there is sort of a, a wink and a nod to um, the process of becoming a convert to Judaism in this passage. Um, a lot of his audience understand the context um in which paul is speaking many of us do not so let me refresh your memory or if you're new here let me catch you up uh this letter is, is a simple letter the bible is a library of tons and tons of books and letters and poems all put together um um to reveal to us who god is and who we are and what we're doing here and so we have this particular letter from a man named paul and it's written to a church in a city an ancient roman city in the first century called galatia and there's this group of of Greco-Roman citizens, and they're there, and they're, they're followers, they've, they're fresh new followers of, of Jesus Christ. And there is a sect of, Juda, of, of Judaism where, um, the, the leaders of this group that Paul calls the Judaizers have come into the city of Galatia, and they are trying to convince these Christians that really, in order to be Christian, you have to be Jewish. You have to obey all of the laws that are stacked up, so thousands and thousands of laws. Um, you have to cut your hair a certain way, plant certain kinds of seeds in your garden, wear a certain kind of clothing, um, cut certain parts of your body, all kinds of stuff. Um, and it's uh, it's pretty oppressive. And Paul is writing this letter to wake them up, to say, no, this is not what you have been brought into. And so he mentions baptism. Now, the word used here is the word baptizo. Uh, baptized is the word baptizo. And it simply means to submerge. That's all it means, um, submerging underwater. And what he's Referencing here is when you became a convert to Judaism. If you were um, a Greek or anything else, and you wanted to become Jewish, you could. Uh, you could convert to Judaism, but you had to um, go through several different processes. One of them, which was, was, was the ritual cleansing, um, and that would be done in a mikvah. And a mikvah is sort of a, a giant bathtub. It had a certain exact measure of water that was. Poured in exact a particular way, it was kind of guided in from a spring. It couldn't be poured in, um, and uh, you would remove all of your man-made things all over your body. Uh, so clothing, earrings, hairstyles, everything would just come down. And you would be naked, and you would step down the stairs into the bath, the mikvah, the ritual bath. And then you would come up out, the, you would be totally submerged, and you would come out the other side. And when you came out the other side, you would be given a white robe to wear, and you would stand with all the others being baptized. Um, and so Paul here, he mentions sort of this process, because the early Christians were using this as well, um, because it was how they understood coming into a new faith. It was this public profession that like, okay, I'm now Jewish. And so the Christians would use it and say, I'm now a follower of Christ. You now see me this day. I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. And so people were being baptized into Christ. It's not a requirement to be a follower of Christ, but it's this public profession that you are one so that everyone would see. And so um, Paul sort of mentions this and uh, and and he says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what he's basically saying is. When you became a Jew, you got a nice white robe to cover yourself. But when you become a follower of Jesus, he covers you. It's not the white robe anymore. So think about this for a second. You would have a whole group of people who had just been baptized. Every All the evidence of their culture would be removed, would be taken off the way they're, they're, they, were, they were pierced, the hairstyles, the braids. Their particular clothing would be removed, and so you would not be able to tell if someone was, was um, they'd, be, they'd be all sopping wet, wearing these white robes in, in a big group. You wouldn't be able to tell who was from Samaria, from Galilee, from Bethlehem, from Jerusalem, from Rome, from Philippi. You would not be able to tell who was free, who was a slave. They would all just kind of look the same. And so he says, in the same way when you were baptized into Judaism and you were given sort of the robe, now when you come to Christ... You're not putting on some robe. You're putting on Christ, and what basically the picture that you would have is like a child, like a little girl, with a father who covers her, protects her. She finds that her identity in him, in his goodness, and who he is, and all of her needs he provides, and all of his goodness sort of showers her and covers her and protects her. This is the idea. We are covered in Christ. Okay. So um, he continues this thought into the next verse. So let's look at this next verse with fresh eyes. He continues, for as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, not the white robe, Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female for you are all one in Christ. And so the group of people is there. And just like in the white robe, you couldn't tell who was who. Well, now you are in Christ. And there's no more Jew or Greek. He even mentions, so he takes the idea of the Jew, and he says, not even that anymore. No Jew, no Greek. We're, we're one family. We're all one family. Um, no slave, no free. So, um, and the idea is, as God is moving this forward, when God's plan has fully come to fruition, all will be covered, and we will be together, and we will see that we are one family, all who are in Christ are part of the family. Now, um, imagine with me, try to unfamiliarize yourself with this passage. It's really hard for us to unfamiliarize ourselves with passages. I mean, I'm 35, so I have 35 years of reading this passage with a particular slant and a particular bend. And it's very hard for us to, like, sort of look at it with fresh eyes. Um, but try. Imagine with me, you are a first century Greek, and you're living in Rome, or Galatia, or Philippi, and, and, you're just a run of the mill citizen doing your thing. And you understand that there are separations of society. There is upper class, there is lower class, there is the middle class, and there is everything in between. And there are, um, men are higher than women, free, free men are higher than slaves. Um, and there's just sort of, and, and the Greeks considered themselves higher than the Jews, and the Jews considered themselves higher than the Greeks. And you're living in this world. And there are these, as, I'm going to repeat some of the things I taught in our sermon on, on women in the church. Um, there were these particular, um, things that, that would be said, that the Greeks said every single day. It was, it was a known Greek saying. It went like this. I'm grateful that I was born a human being and not a beast. Next, a man and not a woman. Thirdly, a Greek and not a barbarian. And so, this is, you can gather the mindset of the way that, that the early Greeks were thinking. And it was no different for the Jewish people because, um, Jewish, um, ad- adherence to, to Judaism would every day pray this prayer several times a day. Praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a Gentile. Praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a boar. A boor would be uh, like a sluggard or somebody who couldn't work because of some physical ailment or something. They were just kind of useless in society. Praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a woman. Um, and so you're like, well, yeah, that all that sounds very racist and sexist. Yes, you're right. Um, it is. And so you are, are, but you're living in this society in the first century and suddenly, this this Jew writes you a letter. And not only is he a Jew, so he's like upper class, he's, he's, he's a rabbi. So he's the top of Judaism. And he's a man. So in their day, he would be higher than all the others as they looked at it. And this man writes you a letter. And you're poor. And you're Greek. And the, the Greeks think they're higher than others. And the Jews think they're higher. Than others, and then Paul writes a letter and says, "This there's neither Jew nor Greek." First off, great intro, love that. Scholars tell us that Paul was writing this in direct response to the to the uh, the sayings of the day. So the Greeks say this, the Jews say this. I say there's neither Jew nor Greek in Christ. What the saying, there's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So imagine with me that you. Or the lower class? What would you have felt? First off, you're being received and welcomed and greeted by somebody who is way higher than you. And they're saying, you and me, we're the same. We are equal. And as Christians, as followers of of Jesus, we are on the same level. I am not above you. You are not below me. We are the same. And so... The amount of hope and the joy and the peace that you would find in here for the very first time. If you can read this passage for the very sort of first time in, in that day, it has this sort of lightness. It's also a command. It is telling you how to look at the world around you. We're all in Christ. Here's how you view everyone. We're all equal in society, in the church, in our communities. We're equal. Um, now, imagine that you're, you're one of the higher up ones. Maybe you are a Jewish rabbi. And you are now a follower of Jesus. There's really two responses that you could have to this passage. You could either nod your head yes or you could shake your head no. Really? I mean, uh, you could hear, you could hear the commandment that we're all the same. And and you could nod your head, yes, we are, and suddenly feel a sense of responsibility. I have much, others have little, and you have a responsibility to those around you. You feel a part of something, and you feel responsible to love and care for those around you who have less. However, the other response is the one we are, all of us are, are more likely, especially in our 21st century American Western society, um, we are a lot more likely to shake our heads because we feel threatened. Now, um, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to try to be honest with yourself. No one will hear this answer but you. And this is a great time to search your heart because I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer it as honestly to yourself as you possibly can. Um, what emotion do you feel When people talk to you about the poor. Do you feel a sense of responsibility? Or do you feel threatened in some way? Honestly. Tell yourself what you feel. It's really important to pay attention to what is going on inside of our hearts. uh, When we hear about suffering in the world. Because... More often than not, I would argue we feel threatened, that somehow when people talk about the poor, our way of life is being threatened with change. The things that we have are threatened with being taken away. Um, we are having an extra burden put on top of us when we'd much rather just stay the same. I mean, how many times have you changed the channel when Sarah McLaughlin starts singing on the commercial? <laughs> right? And those are just dogs. And if you live in Seminole Heights, dogs are higher than children here. <laughs> and, so, and so, let's be honest, right? Um, and so, it's sort of like we change the channel and pretend it doesn't exist, and, and we don't want to hear about suffering in the world. And we like to think about, again, what we talked about last week, those who are useful. And so... A celebrity dies, and all of our social media feeds are filled with every aspect of one celebrity's life, and at the same time, 1,800 people perish, um, running from a war-torn nation, and, and drowned in the ocean. And we just don't care. It's not that we don't care. It's that we avoid it. We don't think about it. We don't feel responsibility for it. Um, and in fact, when we hear about it, we feel burdened by it and threatened by it because we might have to do something. Now, um, about a year ago, or so we looked at uh, a particular parable that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 20 that confronted the people of his day with these same exact thoughts. And what he wanted, he's not telling anybody what to do and I'm not telling you what to do. I'm asking you to search your heart because how you respond, like the emotions that you feel when you hear about the plight of the people around you, really does reveal, it should reveal to you, if you're honest with yourself, it should reveal to you the depth at which you have allowed the gospel to penetrate different parts of your life. Pay attention to your responses, your first reactions that you have inside of you. Don't avoid them. Be honest about them. Um, and Jesus forces a, a group of people once to do this. In Matthew chapter 20, um, he he tells this story about... Um, This farmer who owned a bunch of land. And so, um, here, I'm going to, I'm going to read that for you now. It starts in, in, in Matthew chapter 20. God's kingdom is like an estate manager who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. They agreed on a wage of a dollar a day and went to work. Later, about nine o'clock, the manager saw some other men hanging around the town square unemployed. And he told them to go work in his vineyard, and he would pay them a fair wage. And they went. He did the same thing at noon. And again, at 3 o'clock, at 5 o'clock, he went back and found still others standing around. And he said, why are you standing around all day doing nothing? They said, because no one hired us. He told them to go to work in his vineyard. And when the day's work was over, the owner of the vineyard instructed his foreman, call the workers in and pay them their wages. Start with the last hired and go on to the first. Those hired at five o'clock came up and were given each a dollar. When those who were hired first saw that they were given a dollar, they assumed that they would get far more. But they got the same, each of them, one dollar. Taking the dollar, they groused angrily to the manager. These last workers put in only one easy hour, and you just made them equal to us who slaved all day under a scorching sun. And he replied to the one speaking for the rest, friend. I haven't been unfair. We agreed on the wage of a dollar, didn't we? So take it and go. I decide to give to the one who came last the same as you. Can't I do what I want with my own money? Are you going to get stingy because I'm generous? That last line is really important. Am I allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the landowner in Jesus' story pays the person who came in at 9 in the morning and pays the person who just showed up and worked for an hour the same. In our world, that's cause for protest. That makes us angry. That's not okay. And Jesus tells them this story so that they will search their hearts and say, hey, Jesus is essentially saying, Are you envious because I'm generous? How many times have you been envious because of the generosity of someone else? How many times have you scorned somebody for receiving something that you wanted? How many times have you been angry with somebody receiving the same as you when you worked so much harder for it? These are not biblical emotions. The question that Jesus is kind of asking is, can you celebrate the good wherever it happens? If you see good happening, can you celebrate it? Or do you do you have to internalize it and say, well, that never happened to me, it shouldn't happen to them. The gospel is the plain and simple message that everything is a gift. You don't deserve anything that you have. And you yourself have created this illusion that you have earned it. when it in fact has nothing to do with you. Now, so the idea that I earned this, the idea of fairness, getting even, working our way back to square, these are not biblical ideas. And the gospel challenges these things. And it is intensely difficult to deal with. And the, the amount of emotion it makes you feel is, is really difficult. And so, yes, God is generous. And the question is, does the generosity of God actually cause you to sin? Because oftentimes it does. In all of us. The deepest message of the gospel is there is, there is no getting even. There is only grace. And this is not unique. This idea of, I deserve this and nobody else does, or, I am above others because of my experience or my accomplishments. This is not unique to one particular social class. This is something that is universal in humanity. Um, People love to bash the rich, right? I mean, it's it's one of the favorite American pastimes, apparently, in the last 20 years or so, is bashing the rich. Um, But... And, and so, yeah, and so you, you talk about the rich and you say things like, oh, the upper class, the high society has this air of superiority. And sometimes they do. Sometimes people, you know, they believe that they're guiding the ship and they're keeping things together. And there's this level of importance that the upper class in every society has. They're like, we're in control. We're just making sure that the ship doesn't sink and, and we're taking care of everyone under us. And then you ask the middle class. But the thing is, the middle class kind of has this same air of superiority, don't they? I mean, the working class, as they call themselves, has this sense of pride that they are the ones who built society the pride of the blue collar—they're out to earn their own keep. Um, it builds this sense of piety that allows them to find their identity in the fact that, you know, I'm not like I'm not like the uh, like like the rich who had everything handed to them, and I'm not like the poor who have everything handed to them. This is how we talk about ourselves, right? This is what we do. And then it doesn't even end there, because if you go down to the bottom of society, even the lowest of the lowest, you, you know what you know what um, hip hop artists and punk rock artists have in common? They sing about where they're from and how terrible it is and how you don't understand and how much better they are because of the experience of it. We all do this. Every society, every section of every part of society does this. Even the lowest class has this sense of identity and struggles, this sort of pride, um, this, exp- this pride that, that their experience is unique that others couldn't possibly understand and are not welcome into your circles. And we all do this. I, I know somebody who went to AA meetings um, not because they were an alcoholic, but simply because um, they were struggling with intensely painful, difficult things in their life, and they needed to be in a space where people are being brutally honest with themselves. And what they found in the AA group was this sort of community of people just telling it like it is being honest and confessing. And when they found out he was an alcoholic, um, the person on his left was sort of, you know, passive aggressively saying, it's inappropriate that you're here. the person on the right kind of joined in. And over a few weeks, they were kind of letting him know, hey, it's not appropriate that you'd be here. You're not an alcoholic like us. And at one point, he says, hey, please, please let me stay. I need this. I will go out and start drinking right now. I will drink and drink. I will become an alcoholic if you will let me stay and be a part of this. And the guy on the right leans forward and he looks at the guy on the left and he says, ah, crap, we've become the church. Think about that. That actually happened. We don't want to be around people who aren't like us, do we? Nobody does. No matter how low you are, no matter how high you are, you want to be around people that have the same experience because you have this pious identity and who it is. And in March Paul, there's no more Jew, there's no more Greek, no more male, no female, no slave, no free. In the church, sitting shoulder to shoulder to shoulder, you had the Jewish rabbi and you had the Greek soldier, you have the centurion, you have um the man and the woman and the slave, you have the prostitute and the eunuch, the the sexual deviants of their day and they're all sitting shoulder to shoulder and they're all singing the praises of their god, thanking him for um showing grace upon them all collectively. This is the church. This is how it works. We don't allow ourselves to be separated by our experiences. We don't think of ourselves as more pious and more experienced than others. And farther along on the trail, we are simply looking to serve each other. This is how the church should be. It's not how the church is today. But the message of the gospel is resurrection. It can become this. Things can be made whole again. One of the things that I've, um, that sort of, I couldn't get out of my head this week, that I was, I, was I, I read super random things sometimes. I'll see something and I'll be like, I'm going to read that. This is going to be this is going to be unique. So this week I actually read about the history of pigeons, as you do. Um Stay with me. You can't not stay with me. I'm talking about pigeons, right? Um now, we look at pigeons, this is going to go somewhere, I promise. We look at pigeons as these filthy disgusting, you know, uh, rats with wings and feathers. Um and they're they're pretty gross, disease-ridden kind of creatures. Um You may not realize the history, I guarantee you don't realize the history of pigeons. Um, we actually, we actually made them into everything that they are, us as people. So believe it or not, um, pigeons actually used to be, um, a bird of the aristocracy. Pigeons only live, um, almost exclusively with people, where people live, and only where there is abundant food supply created usually by our waste. And so there was a time when pigeons only lived around high society and they loved them and they would feed them regularly and they would build their, their castles with this thing called a belvedere at the very top of the castle. It was basically a pigeon home. And you would go up and you would feed the pigeons and they'd fly and they'd fly back. If you were traveling through a countryside and you saw pigeons flying, in your mind you would think, huh. Oh, there must be rich people around here. It's like passing a West Elm, right? There must be rich people here. And, and this is how you would kind of look at pigeons. Now, pigeons were eventually brought to America with the elite class and they, and they, um, they lived with the elite. And, and the thing is though, America was really successful and we created a lot of waste and pigeons just kind of they reproduced like crazy and they, they reproduced like pigeons and they spread everywhere and they were living in our parks and on top of our buildings and then everyone, everyone eventually started hating them. But if you actually go back and you read literature, you will, you can trace ancient literature up until now, you can trace the fall of the pigeon from glory <laughs> down to where it is now. In fact, the word pigeon and the word for dove, they were interchangeable. Because believe it or not, scientifically and taxonomically, pigeons and doves are the same thing. The same thing. The ones that we call doves, we usually only call them that when they're white pigeons. Which, don't even get me started on that. (laughs) Now, so, you can trace this path of the pigeon, the fall of the pigeon from grace. Um, And so eventually, all good things started being called doves, and all bad things started to be called pigeons, right? And, and we continue this today. I mean, would you buy a pigeon chocolate bar? No. Would you use pigeon soap? No. And we don't describe the Spirit of the Lord descending from heaven like a pigeon. We don't do that. Pigeons are bad. Doves are good. Here's the thing. They're the exact same thing. They only are what you decide they are. Now, for some reason, I was infatuated with this idea because humans do this constantly with everything. People are the same. We are all the same. Yet there are some people that we consider sort of the doves in our life. You know, they're they're high class, right? And and they they when we're around them, we have this image, right, that like the dove, like the pigeon dove, whatever, flying around the countryside. Oh, they're hanging out with this person. They must be higher class. And there are other people, they're just like everyone else, so they're kind of pigeons. You don't spend a lot of time with them, right? This is what we do with everything. Everything. And this is a a really interesting thing to think about because oftentimes what we find is If you treat people as if they are doves, you know what happens? They become doves. They really do. When you love someone, when you choose to spend time and love someone, they become lovable. And you begin to love them. When you look at somebody who needs help and you lower yourself, you humble yourself before them on your knees and you wash their feet and symbolic, whatever this means for you and them, and you serve them, you know what always ends up happening? You end up looking up to them. They, in your eyes, they actually end up lifted higher than you. You know what happens when you speak to somebody in, in, in a way that, 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 that sort of communicates their worth and their meaning? It gives them worth and it gives them meaning. There's this passage in, in the book of Song of Solomon... Um, it's like this, this love poem between two teenagers. Um, and there's this particular part where um, the man is calling out to the, to the woman that he loves. And, and here's what he says in Song of Solomon 2.14. He says, Oh, my dove in the cleft of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. Now, What's happening here is he's describing her. I mean, the setting is she's in her house, in her window, looking out her window, calling out to him, and he's um, on the other side of their garden. She's young, and she's living at home. And he's calling out to her, and he describes it as if he's walking up a path, and there's a dove hiding in the rocks, afraid to be seen. And he's trying to coax the dove out of the rock. And the way he does this is he describes, I think you're beautiful. When you speak, I am just I'm overjoyed when I just to hear your voice, the things that you have to say, the way that you talk. Everything about you is beautiful. I I just want to look at you, I just want to lay eyes on you. You are gorgeous. And as the story goes, she kind of realizes how he looks at her and she starts to feel this way. As he loves her, she becomes she starts to feel loved. And she starts to feel as he describes her beauty, she starts to feel beautiful and she comes out. Now, the rabbis described the Song of Solomon. The ancient rabbis always talked about this book as it's not just a letter between two young people. It's also a letter from God to us and from us to God. It's, it's the passionate love that God has for his people. And so the picture that the rabbis would have here is um, God is constantly giving you information that is contrary to what you are hearing. I mean... If you look up all the all the all the Hebrew and the Greek words for the enemy or Satan or the the, the word that is translated there is the word that means the accuser. It is the voice you're hearing in your ear that tells you you are not good enough, you are not loved, you're ugly, you're untalented, you're incapable of being a good person. And then God is on the other side. I think you're I think you're lovely. I think you're beautiful. I think you're worth dying for. I think you are everything everything that I've ever wanted. And I want you to grab onto my words, not the words of the enemy. I want you to hold onto my words, and, and and I'm trying to draw you out to me. Because we believe the things that we hear about ourselves. We believe it, and it changes us. You know what communion is? I mean, okay, so there are times when you're having a glass of wine and, and some bread, and it's just normal. Maybe you're watching TV, or you're at a party or a gathering or dinner time. So there's times when a, when a glass of wine is just a glass of wine and a, and, a, and a loaf of bread is just a loaf of bread. And then there are other times where you stand before the glass of wine and the loaf of bread and you weep and you sob. Why? It's the same. Is one a dove and one a pigeon? Yes. Why? Because you have made it so. Communion, at the root of it, is this word common. And the idea of communion, the ancient writers talk about, is is finding Christ in the common. It's just a glass of wine. It's just bread. You interact with these things all the time. It's just wine. It's just bread. But when you come to the table, it's Christ in the common. And this is an exercise. An exercise means you are practicing something to take outside and be better at. And so in your daily walk, as you are living your life, your goal in communion is to learn and remind yourself, once again, to find Christ in the common. You love people because Christ loves them, and you work with purpose, and you forgive, and you don't separate yourselves from people based upon gender, race, nationality, language, social status. Finding Christ in the common is is one of the many goals that the Christian should have in every single day. The The reason we come together every single week and we take communion is to remind ourselves, find Christ in the common, find Christ in the common. And every time we leave this place, we should be a little better at seeing the sacredness of life and the spirituality of all things going on around us at all times. Every single person in your peripheral vision is a child of God that God is trying to draw into himself. Finding Christ in the common every single moment. And the biggest picture of this is Jesus, God, the dove, descending and becoming just like all of us, the pigeons, if you will, right? And what does he do? He finds the lowest of the low and he lifts them up. This is the gospel. This is how this works. This is what the gospel should do. So when Paul writes, there is, there is no more Jew, no Greek, no man, no woman, no slave, no free, he's not... He's not just telling you facts. He's giving you a command. There is no more. We're not going to do this anymore. There's no more pigeons. All are doves. And so we're going to take communion. If you're a communion server, why don't you go ahead and uh, take the elements and spread around the room. Um, we are going to exercise this in the simplest way possible. The thing we do every single week. Finding Christ in the common. Communion. That's what this is about. It's just bread. You eat bread all the time, unless you're gluten-free. You eat bread all the time, and it's just bread. But, but in this moment, the bread's not just bread. The bread has meaning. And it's not just wine. In this moment, the wine has meaning. And so maybe next time you have bread and wine, you will be reminded of Christ. And maybe next time when you hand somebody a loaf of bread, you symbolically, when you hand somebody anything, you are serving them. As Christ served his church and poured himself out for the salvation of all people. And so our communion servers are going to spread around the room. If you're a follower of Jesus, please take communion with us. Just take a piece of bread. You're going to dip it in the wine and you're going to eat it. And it's going to, it, it's going to um, go down inside of you and you're going to, you're going to pray, God, touch the parts of my life that have not yet been touched with your gospel. And this week, I want you to try to be aware of all of it. The, the reactions that you have when you hear about things that you don't like. Be honest with yourself. And the other thing I want you to do is do everything you can to keep Christ in the common things of life. So let's pray. Father, we love you. Make us like you. Continue to change us. Make us more loving. Help us to have a part in uh, the reconciliation of all things to you. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.